This is Two Gringos with Questions, a series of interviews featuring political and cultural leaders from across the Americas, brought to you by the Canadian Council for the Americas and Global Americans. Uh, big conversation today, Chris. Why don't you tell the audience with whom we're speaking? We're talking to Leon Krause, who is a, just a well-known intellectual Mexican-American who's now at Univision uh, based out of Los Angeles and is uh, really sort of represents that new generation of binational intellectual uh, that straddle both worlds and has really, uh, this is when we interviewed Daniel Coronel, uh, has led the development of a media community around Hispanic Americans and, and, and has himself an interesting history. So I'm really looking forward to this. And what a coincidence that he works with Daniel Coronel. Yeah. And, and that, that, yeah. <laughs> as, assembling uh, assembling uh, people with that broad view of, of certainly North America, but, but the world. And as you mentioned, he comes from an interesting history. His, his father, one of the best known intellectuals, editor of the influential magazine in Mexico. And his, Letras Libres, yeah. Yeah, yeah and a his, a historian. So he, he comes by uh, his, his vocation honestly, for sure. Yeah, and he, uh, the father was also the author of uh, Mexico, Biography of Power. Uh, which I have in my bookshelf and made it about. It's a thick book. Uh, I hope he doesn't ask any questions about it because I never made it through. It's a good yeah. book, I'm sure. Yeah, well, if you, it's intimidating. If he, if he puts it into article form, you'll read it, though. <laughs> I was thinking more like a performance dance move, but okay, I, we'll see. No, no, no. This no. is radio, okay. so it doesn't Okay, matter. no, let's go. Let's do this. Okay. So, Leon, um, let's start by talking about your native country, uh, Mexico. Something that's been in the news uh, the week we're doing this interview, uh, which is the plan by AMLO to uh, have a referendum on whether to prosecute former presidents for corruption. First of all, give us a little bit of context and uh, anti-corruption drive and how he's, if you will, weaponizing anti-corruption, but also your read on what's spawning this and what could be the implications and will he follow through on it? Well, Chris, as you know, Lopez Obrador came to power uh, on the promise of, of fighting corruption. That has been his, his message, his theme for, uh, for over 20 years. Actually, his only message <laughs> for over 20 years. You can go back and uh, listen to his interviews from the late 90s, and he was saying the same thing. You know, Mexico is controlled by yeah. a power mafia, la mafia del poder, uh, that pulls the strings, and all of them are corrupt. Um, so, I mean, I think nowadays the, 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 the crucial thing to understand is that um, the Lopez Obrador administration has become uh, increasingly a government of symbols, not of results. Uh, Lopez Obrador cares, cares more for the, for the symbolic because the symbolic allows him to control the narrative, which allows him to accumulate power. Or at least for now, that's what he seems to think, and his latest effort is, uh, is, is this referendum in which he intends to ask people whether former presidents should be brought to trial. And it's a perfect example of this, this tension for, for the symbolic, which is, of course, eminently populist. I mean, he, he, does, he does not need, this is crucial, he does not need a referendum to bring anyone to justice. He, he only needs 
evidence, <laughs> if there is evidence against any of the former presidents of Mexico, then authorities should just proceed. There's no need to make a political show of the whole thing unless the intention is, how shall I put it, not to follow the rule of law, but I mean, just create a useful political spectacle with federal elections less than a year away in Mexico. And, and this, this is becoming quite a problem in, in Mexican politics. The fact that López Obrador, just like he was before he was elected, has remained a man mostly interested in accumulating power and parading the symbolic instead of result. And uh, there's, there's no pragmatism in López Obrador other than the pragmatism that comes with the calculations towards uh, accumulating power. Well, in this case, too, it seems the symbolism is a very potent weapon. Uh, the idea of a referendum is obviously intended also to inflame his supporters, to mobilize support. You know, will there be any efforts at integrity of this referendum? I'm thinking also the referendum that was done um, on the airport, in the new airport in Mexico, which was jettisoned. Yes. I mean, is this going to be a similar exercise in just stoking his base and, and getting people feeling like there's some sort of direct democratic connection? Well, this, this, uh, they, they needed a, a, a number of, uh, of signatures for, for, for the referendum to begin to proceed. And uh, funnily enough, in the last few moments, literally in the last few moments, hundreds of thousands of signatures uh, appeared. I mean, I think uh, that Reforma, the Mexican newspaper, uh, actually made them, ran the numbers and, and came up with something like a, a new signature every 13 seconds or something like that. So that, uh, that reminds me of, uh, of the pre, of the times yeah. of the pre in which just power worked for power's sake, for the preservation of the system, for the preservation of itself. And uh, now the question uh, is, is on, on the doorstep of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has to show once again its independence. And that's an open question in Mexico right now. If the Supreme Court does not show its independence, in this case and other cases, then uh, this is going to be, <laughs> put it very mildly, a real problem, because Congress is now uh, in the hands of López Obrador. Um, it might be even more so, who knows, but it might be even more so uh, after the next year's election. Um, there's no one in his inner circle that can say to him, hey, Mr. President, you've gone too far. The Me Mexican, Me Mexican uh, free press and independent press and, and, and the, the president's critics are under assault almost every day by the president himself. So we're left with the judiciary. If the, if the Supreme Court does not do what it's supposed to do, then we're in, in, in real trouble. Leon, um, there's, I know there's a lot that you've been unhappy about, as have many others, with respect to how AMLO has handled COVID and, and many other issues, and you've written um, very eloquently about them and, and, and very pointedly. And what, I'm interested in, in going back a little bit. Now you, you, in 2012, wrote, wrote a piece in Letras Libres in which you used the term caudillo, to refer to Lopez Obrador, others had had echoed similar sentiments. Le but Leo, Leon's father actually referred to him as messianic. In yeah, yeah, and I, that right. was. And I actually, at the time, I thought it was very exagerado. But yeah. I, I actually saw your father, uh, Leon, and I, I apologized, even though I had only criticized him in absentia for thinking it was exaggerated. But sorry, go ahead, Kat. But yeah, no, okay, and so, um, but at the same time, Leon, in, in the same article, you were very critical of the PRI. Right, and, and, and I, you, you, called, you, you talked about their viejos y prehistóricos abusos y costumbres. Yeah. Uh, and, you, and you called on, and you then went through, you know, <laughs> which could have been a conversation about the left in almost any country 
in the world from time immemorial about the left fighting amongst itself and not getting its act together. Uh, and you called on them to get their act together in a certain way. And you called on Marcelo Ebrard to be the leader of it, not the only person who could lead it, but one of them. Yeah. What happened? What happened between 2012 and 2018? Enrique Peña Nieto happened. Right. Lopez Obrador won the presidency of Mexico on, on the promise of a sort of profound moral renewal of politics and, and public conduct, right? I mean, during the campaign, he insisted that, that his election would, would usher in a new era of honesty and tolerance. He would rule by example and through that example, set the standard for moral public uh, behavior. Uh, I, I remember to almost any question, uh, he, he, he replied that uh, corruption was going to end once he came to power and that was a solution. I, during the second presidential debate that I had the, the, the privilege of moderating, I asked him, how, how would you uh, manage to stop um, production and distribution of fentanyl, which is now a, a big issue with the United States? And his answer was exactly the same. I am, I am sure that if I had asked him, how will you make sure that Mexico gets to the quarterfinals in the World Cup, he would have said, corruption is going to end because I'll be the president and that, that will be that. Yeah, um, that was a common, common refrain in, in public was, and private appearances, correct? It yeah. was frankly an admirable uh, discipline when it comes to messaging. And, and he benefited from two things. I mean, first, obviously, exhaustion after 12 years of bloodshed. I mean, by 2018, Mexicans had faced unimaginable horrors. I mean, over 230,000 people have died during the country's war on, on, on drug cartels, now many more, now probably close to 270,000. And, and then, of course, he, he, he benefited from the obscene corruption of the Peña Nieto administration. I mean, Lopez Obrador has spent most of his political life, like I, I said, insisting that Mexican politicians were part of a, this, this mafia del poder, right? A system of privilege. This has been his message from the, from the late 90s. And what did Peña Nieto and his cronies do? They, they proved Lopez Obrador was right all along. I once told one of Lopez Obrador's associates, actually, that he could run on a very simple slogan. Lopez Obrador, te lo dije. Lopez Obrador, I, I told you so. And in a way, you know, that's how he ran. He, he had this sl slogan that was genius. Estaríamos mejor con Lopez Obrador. We would all be better off with Lopez Obrador. A brilliant, simple slogan promising real change. And the question now, is, is, has he delivered? Are Mexicans better off with Lopez Obrador? Has he delivered on his promise of moral overhaul of Mexican public life? And I think the answer is very clearly and sadly, no. Right, but at the same time, at, at the same time, and you know, it's sort of my question about what happened between 2012 and 2018. And yes, the one of the answers is Peña Nieto, but one of the other sort of interesting things to explore is what happened to a an opposition that you thought Ebrard could help lead that oh. would that would would have presented, I think, what you were were imagining a more coherent uh, opposition or a narrative than what the PRI had to offer. And as you say, what the PRI had to offer was mas de lo mismo or maybe even worse yes. in, in, in certain ways. And so, you know, the, so there's, there's a two-part question. What happened to that opposition? I'm always interested in how things became the way they did. It's the same thing in, in the United States, right? I mean, Trump didn't just happen because of himself, right? The ground, the conditions were created for him to be there. And so, you know, and so the, the second, and, and, and a lot by the Republican Party. 
a lot by the Republican Party and oh, yeah. what they allowed to do over the years. And so I'm trying to, I'm sort of trying to suss that out a little bit about the rudiments of the last six years and what led to Lopez Obrador doing that. In fact, bringing Mexico, Mexico to a point after yeah. the PRI that it was almost like, really, what is the alternative? Yes. Right. And right. And even in the, the debate, which is, I think is the question that you asked Pepe me, well, was, was, uh, Peña Nieto correct to invite Trump down to Mexico? And he said, yes. Right? yes. And so there you go. There's a bunch of stuff there. You want to sort of make your of way course, through some of, course, of those of ideas? Yeah. Sure. Uh, listen, I mean, um, when you think of the Republican Party, is there a Republican Party? There's not a Republican Party nowadays. There's, it's a party of Trump. Uh, and uh, the conservative movement is now the, 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 the movement of Trump. Of course, there are some voices that will probably come back once Trump hopefully leaves office uh, and loses the election and leaves office, hopefully peacefully. Um, uh, uh, th there are voices, there's a, there's a generation that will, that will try to, to come back to uh, sanity. But right now, the Republican Party is the party of Trump. Well, the Mexican left is the party of Lopez Obrador. So that explains the Mexican left. And frankly, it's as sad and simple as that. Uh, and I do say sad because I consider myself an orphan of the, of the left uh, as a voter. Um, I, I wish that Mexico had a real option uh, from, from, from the progressive movement, from its progressive movement. That's why I wrote about Debrard, who has been waiting in the wings forever, right? What, what's that phrase in English? Once, twice, three times a bridesmaid, never a bride. That's, that's basically the, the idea with Debrard. And he's doing the same thing right now. He's the vice president, the de facto vice president of Mexico in charge of everything. First of all, trying to handle Trump. And uh, he's there waiting in the wings, as is the rest of a modern left in Mexico, waiting for this man who is not a progressive, who is something very different, who is something much more close to a, to a conservative, even to a libertarian, when you see his fiscal policy. Um, just move on, because he has kidnapped Mexican public life and, and the Mexican left for now over 25 years. That's the truth. Now, so that raises a question of, you made the comparison with the Republican Party and Trump, and it raises the question in the case of, of, of AMLO and, and those around him who are sort of enabling him and sort of waiting in the wings. I mean, does, has the party shifted or has the definition of left shifted in a way that these people are now so stained Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's Scheinbaum or or Ebrard or who have you, that the party is when they when it comes their turn, the party will have so distanced itself from their original principles that they can't mobilize. Or what will happen to them and the base that they thought they had or probably did have, say, ten years ago? That's a fascinating question. Fascinating question, uh, and I, I think it comes down to narrative. There was a recent poll in Mexico that um, suggested that a large percentage of people who consider themselves, them, themselves, let's say, progressive or from the left, actually thought that what Lopez Obrador was doing was uh, coherent with uh, progressive policies. This from a man who has uh, uh, faced the pandemic without offering basically any, any stimulus to speak of, um, a man who has opposed uh, or at least stayed, stayed quiet on the whole social agenda than that in any other country, in the case of any other progressive politician, would be, would be front and center. This from a man who has militarized the country, uh, contrary to, to what, he, what he promised. And I could go on. 
that is not progressive politics or policies. Simply, they're not. But people in Mexico believe they are. I think there's a deep, deep, deep confusion as to what being a real modern leftist progressive politician really means in Mexico. Um, and, and that has to, has to do with, with, with the, the, the lack of knowledge uh, uh, or, or, or political education, if you, if you may, uh, that, we, that we see in Mexico and I think we see in, in other parts in, of Latin America as well. I don't think you would see the same thing in Chile, for example, uh, that has had a longer and much more, more successful and better led transition uh, from, from authoritarian rule towards, towards uh, full democracy. But uh, that's, that's one thing. Now, whether or not the other figures in, in Morena, in the president's party and the president's inner circle will be tainted by what we've, we've been seeing, well, first of all, that the, first, the first thing is we, we still have four years to go. Uh, Lopez Obrador has four years to ride the ship, uh, to correct the, the, the ship's uh, direction, and, uh, and, and that's important. And the other, the other thing is he owns the narrative, Chris. Uh, he's there every morning facing the press in his mañaneras. And, but facing the press is, in many cases, uh, not the right turn. Because there are the, the, the people, who, this, is, this is not the White House press corps. Uh, there are people there who are there just to ask him, how, what does he do to, to look like a Kenyan marathon runner? And I am not making this up. This actually happened. Uh, how he how he has this amazing stamina again we're back to the, the the era of the pre of the pri but he sets the agenda from that bully pulpit every morning he has this position of authority and without an opposition because there certainly is no opposition um with a free press that's under assault by the president himself it's very easy to understand why he maintains a certain level of popularity you know who's also very popular the pope because he goes out on the balcony, gives a speech, everyone claps, and then he goes back in. Yeah. The Pope is also very, <laughs> very popular. But the, po the Pope doesn't do it on September 1st, Leon. That's right, or on second, or third, September or 15th. Five. Because Lopez Obrador goes, you're right, Lopez Obrador, I wish he only did it on September 1st. He does it every day. <laughs> but, but Leon, the thing, about, the thing about this time around is there was a bit of a coalition coming to, I mean, I think of Tatiana Cloutier, for example, you know, grew up in the Pan party, although she broke a bit, you know, from the party of her father, but there, she wasn't the only one that had some hope that there would be a bit of a convergence around a new Mexico, around another way of doing things, right? I mean, there was, there was some of that. Was that just people being completely um, uh, fooled, I guess is no. an easy word to use? Or No, 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 no. I, listen, I think there's, there, there, there was, I've had uh, two long conversations with Lopez Obrador, personally, long conversations. By the end of the first one, um, which happened quite a few years ago, um, probably eight years ago, I asked him, how will I explain to my four-year-old son who Lopez Obrador has been? And he looked at me and his eyes actually filled with tears. And this is very difficult coming from Lopez Obrador, who's basically a piece of granite, right? A piece of, he's a rock. It's, it's very difficult to touch his heart. But I think I did, I managed. And in a way, I think it was because his own son was around that age. And he told, told me, dígale que he sido un luchador social. Tell him I have been, I have fought for social justice. Uh, and I believed him and I still believe him. And I think many people believed him, right? 
but the fact is that he has he he told everyone that he wa he was well prepared to govern. Uh, he is the most powerful president in Mexican modern history, and he is still obsessed with a the past, b uh, setting scores with his with his uh, opponents and critics, the symbolic, and he uh, and he's just not interested in governing uh, in in any efficient way. He is set on his stubborn ways. He, he will not deviate from his priorities, uh, his infrastructure projects. The perfect example of this is how he has handled the pandemic. The pandemic has forced, forced his fourth transformation to become, like every other government in the world, to become a crisis manager. That's just, what, just the cards that history has dealt López Obrador, whether or not he likes them. Those are the cards that history dealt him. He keeps on rejecting those cards and pushing them off the table, saying, I have my own cards. I want to play my, play my own hand. Well, he can't, but he insists on doing them. And stubbornness in this particular case can, can become pretty tragic for Mexico. What, uh, I won't name names, but what has been the position of a number of the, not the politicians, but a number of the, the leftist glitterati uh, of, of the Mexican intellectual circles that supported him or supported the PRD mm -hmm. uh, back when it was forming against the PRI. What has been their position? Has there been a falling out? I haven't been following it that closely, but obviously whether it's issues on domestic violence, uh, issues of obviously the stimulus, uh, he you know, is very much, and obviously making an alliance with evangelicals, is deviating from their basic principles. Have some of them begun to openly question their, their um, commitment to him or their, their reification of him? You, 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 made, me, you made me think uh, immediately, for some reason, what, what came to my mind, Chris, was remember that issue of the New Republic after the Iraq War, in which basically the editors, uh, I think yeah. Leon Wieseltier yeah. and many others yeah. wrote and asked, were we wrong? Uh, or basically some of them declared that they had been wrong when it came to the Iraq War. So others didn't. Um, well, that hasn't happened in Mexico. Uh, many of the voices that very enthusiastically supported López Obrador from the left have either remained quiet in public or, uh, or, or, simply, or, or simply refused to accept what is now very evident, which is that for now we have a, a, an inefficient government. Yeah, but Leon, to a certain extent, um, look, um, Muñoz Ledo hasn't been that quiet. Oh yeah, that's an interesting and, and, example. But he yeah. said intellectuals. Preacher intellectuals. He seems pretty smart to me, but I, 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 I understand the distinction as a, as a yeah, professional, I suppose. Okay. Fair but enough. He, he, he's a, let, let's say, I, I would say he's an intellectual politician, Muñoz, Muñoz Ledo. Uh, he, has, he has not stated that's quite. an oxymoron, but that's okay. Go ahead, Leon. Yeah, you're right. Well, there you go. I, 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 I tried to find common ground. I respect the, uh, the, the well, you're, you're right. I mean, when I think of politicians from the left, right? I mean, Munoz Ledo is this, this figure from the PRI who then broke off and, and, and was one of the founders of the modern Mexican left along with, with Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas. And he has been critical. And now he, he's trying to lead uh, the Morena party, as, as you know. So right, we'll, right. we'll see what happens. As time goes by, and if results don't come uh, to the government, I'm, I'm sure we will see more, more voices speak up uh, against, uh, against López Obrador, uh, because, you know, 
the limits of politics is failure. Um, that's the limit. So the limit of, of stubbornness in politics is, is always defeat and failure. I, I think we're going to see that with Trumpism. That for now it, it, it seems like Trump owns the Republican Party, but listen, if he loses, he he, he won't, or at least or at least he won't as he does now. Who knows? Uh, who knows? Who the only knows? thing that I would say. The only thing that I would say uh, is that in Mexico, sadly, as in most of Latin America. Many, many people are very brave in private, but very few people are brave in public when it comes yeah, to no, we did it. We did at the Canadian Council, we did a long one on one conversatorio with Munoz Ledo only a, a few months ago. And, and, and I, I, I had to give a, a lot of respect for, you know, what, what clearly comes through in speaking with him, for example, and he really does believe in institutionality. He does yes, he believe does. in the integrity of government institutions. And, and, you know, as you say, in public, he's going to be a little bit more guarded, but you could, you could tell that there was anguish. Like this, this was not what this was all meant to be. Um, and I think, and since over the last two months, he's actually come out a little bit more on that is, are, are you saying that there he's generating, I mean, he's, he's a bit up in his years at this point. That's but, right. But, but nonetheless, he might be a figure that, that a, um, that would be you know, around which people could coalesce who believe in progressive politics, as it were, but are not particularly pleased with what they're seeing in the current AMLO government? Uh, well, you know, what I would like to see, because Lopez, uh, because um, um, you, you laid this, I mean, what I would like to see, and it's important that you point out that Munoz Ledo is as old as, as, he, as he is, uh, I think he's 70, he, sh he must be like 70. Late he's old. He's, yeah, he's in his late, very late 70s. Yeah, exactly. maybe in his 80s. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, that matters. What I would like to see emerge is, uh, I would like to see my generation emerge. I would like to see voices from my generation. I was born in the mid-70s. I'm 45. I would like to see these young, uh, uh, bright minds from the, 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 the progressive movement that very enthusiastically supported Lopez Obrador, slowly begin to emerge and say, hey, you know what? This is not what we, what we thought we were going to get. This is not progressive politics. Uh, this is not what was promised. This is not the moral renewal that was promised. Uh, I think the, the, the future of Mexican politics, not only from the left, but also from the center right, uh, lies with, with my generation and the next generation. If, and there are very few voices there, frankly. And in that generation, and even the, and even the, the slightly older generation, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone from the, the president's coalition willing to, uh, willing to question his decisions in public. I don't know if in private, but certainly it's, in public. It's, sort of, it's so surprising because, you know, anyone who's lived any time in Mexico, particularly, you know, back in the days when I did, it was, there wasn't a day that, that there weren't massive protests at UNAM about something. Now, again, the circumstances, you know, historical circumstances were, were very, very different. But over the last year or so, we've been seeing Colombian students take to the streets, uh, which, is, which is more rare here than in other Latin American countries. Chile, of course, we know about, oh, that was a mixture of students and others. Why, why do you think that nobody has emerged or groups, or, or are they, but just in their nascent stages and trying to figure things out? Is it, is it, it's because it's still viewed as being, having a different opinion than, than AMLO would make you, quote, you know, anti-progressive because 
AMLO is the is the standard bearer of the progressive movement. So yes, can't do something. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I th I think that's I think that's that's very important. He he is the standard bearer of the progressive movement. He is the first uh, man from the left, theoretically, <laughs> from the left to to become the, uh, Mexico's president. And also, you know, this he he has been in power less than two years. He is also quite popular still. I mean, I, 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 have, I have been very critical of, of López Obrador in our conversation, and I will continue to be critical uh, because the results, I think, uh, show that this has been an inefficient government at best. But uh, many people uh, not only approve of his politics and his policies, but have faith in him, even more, uh, which is, I think, even more important at the current juncture. Um, and that's why you are not seeing um, you're not seeing protests. But listen, you are seeing protests from some people, and and these some people are very important people. I, I think, for example, of the women's movement, the, the 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 massive movement against gender violence in Mexico has been incredibly touching and incredibly mm. powerful. And you would think this is a perfect example. You would think that a, that a progressive president uh, would join in the protests would actually march with, along with, with, with the women who are basically saying, hey, we want to be safe. We don't want to be raped. We don't want to be killed. Right. He has questioned the movement. He has questioned the movement's motives. He has said the movement is, uh, is controlled by unseen dark forces. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. But, yeah, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but that's, what, that's how he has reacted. Yeah. The, 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 the famous progressive leftist president has reacted that way to a movement against gender violence. I mean, come on. Yeah. Come on. So, let me use this beginning to, uh, as a little bit of a bridge then to uh, the, uh, the populist on the other side of the border and the quandary of how you explain the fact that, let's start with this among many questions, uh, this, uh, your president uh, um, in Mexico has been so prostrate before Trump, who's insulted uh, immigrants from Mexico, who has treated them inhumanely. There's been no reaction in Mexico. I mean, the level, if you look at Pew numbers, obviously there's very little faith in, uh, I believe it was as low as 13% of Mexicans believe that they don't trust Trump to do the right thing in foreign policy, but yet, there have been no, as I've seen, protest or backlash to AMLO for being such a lapdog to someone who treats his citizens so badly. How do you explain that? It's very difficult and, and painful uh, and maddening. Uh, I mean, listen, Chris, I mean, Lopez Obrador's relationship with Donald Trump will be a case study for future diplomats in the years to come. And I don't mean that in a positive way. I mean, <laughs> look, Lopez Obrador published a book against Donald Trump called Trump Listen. Oye Trump, in which he mm -hmm. openly and clearly, in no uncertain terms, denounced Trump's policies as racist. He even compared them to Nazism. The book is a collection of speeches that, that Lopez Obrador delivered here in the United States in 2017. He toured cities far and wide. I was here with him in, in Los Angeles uh, listening to his speech. And at every turn, he promised he would confront Trump's nativist rhetoric. He told me the same in 2017 when I interviewed him specifically on the issue, the interview is in, is in uh, YouTube. He promised he would protect immigrants and potential refugees. He promised he would undo his predecessor's harsh policies along the southern border. What did he do when he came to power? The exact opposite. He did not confront Trump. 
He did not protect immigrants. He did not denounce Trump's nativist policies. He did the opposite. In order to avoid the threat of tariffs, he, he gave in to the militarization of the country's southern border and accepted the imposition of this brutal Remain in Mexico program. I mean, what, what, what he agreed to was the equivalent of becoming Trump's wall. That's just the truth. And if that wasn't enough, he then made the exact same mistake his predecessor made during the presidential campaign of the United States. In 2016, you remember it very well. I remember it very well. I asked about it during the debate, like you mentioned. Peña Nieto invited right. Trump to Mexico City in August when he was down and out, down for the count. Right. And he gave him a boost. So, I mean, quick context. Lopez Obrador hadn't left the country at all for almost two years. And then he agreed to visit the White House where he thanked Trump, the most anti-Mexican president in our lifetimes, for his gentle treatment, gentle treatment of Mexicans in the United States. I mean, he then seemed to compare Trump to Washington and Lincoln. Come on. I mean, this but, is but Leon, but it, but Leon, what I are mean, Mexicans like, pissed off and, and yeah. rising up? I mean, I mean, well, there, because there are, there are people who feel this on a daily level. They see their relatives locked up, and why haven't they? Well, react? because there, there's two reasons. The first reason is that Mexicans in Mexico, this is a dirty little secret that I have come to conclude, don't really care that much or understand that much about the Mexicans who live in the United States. They just don't. They are not that interested in what they go through here. They don't understand it. If you, if you go on Mexican television and Mexican media, how many stories do you think have appeared on uh, a, a, the situation in the United States over the last few years regarding immigrants, regard, regarding the remaining Mexico and uh, what happened at the detention centers? I can tell you very, very, very few. And there's just not enough interest. We, we, like, to, we like to navel gaze. And for some very strange reason, we ignore the fact that there are, that 25% of Mexico is in the United States. There are many sociological, cultural reasons that we could go into to explain that. It's very painful to me, but I think that's part of the reason. And the other reason is Lopez Obrador controls the narrative. He was there in the morning in Las Mañaneras, spinning this, saying, hey, you know what? I control the monster. He was, uh, uh, and, and he has this army of, of social media trolls and this army of, uh, uh, of, of propagandists surrounding him who sold the idea that visiting Trump and thanking him for his gentleness was actually good diplomacy. What can I say? Yeah, you know, Leon, it, I think there's, there's also another way of looking at it on the behalf of AMLO, which is he very well may want Trump to win, right? In other words, I mean, it's just a little bit of the conversation that's been going on in, Col in Colombia around what Colombia has done with respect to the Trump government and supporting Trump government's nominee to the IDB recently. And the fact of the matter is, is Trump doesn't really care what, what happens in Mexico with regard to human rights. He doesn't care what happens to the peace process in Colombia and the like. But the reality is Joe Biden would, right? And, and, and Joe Biden would have something to say about that. And so you could imagine part of his logic might be, you know what, Trump lets me do whatever I want to do in this country. And it doesn't, you know, and he doesn't, he won't get in my way. He won't criticize me. He won't, he won't upbraid me publicly or privately. Um, you know, and there's, there, there's certain parallels with Colombia as well. What, what do you think about that? I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Lopez uh, yeah. Obrador insists that, the, that, uh, Trump has, has, has uh, improved in his, in his uh, behavior towards Mexicans. 
because Lopez Obrador believes he himself is Mexicans, that every Mexican is contained in him. So the fact that, that Trump has a good relationship with Lopez Obrador, uh, very logically in his mind, means that, Lope, that Trump has really uh, behaved much better with Mexicans since Lopez Obrador came to office. That is, of course, uh, you, 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 could very, you could use facts to demonstrate that's absolutely, completely false. But Lopez Obrador goes on TV and says, hey, you know what? This, this man has been much better uh, recently. Of course he has been much better. You know, I also like people who say yes to everything I want and everything I ask. Mm. And that's, what, that's how Trump has been with Lopez Obrador. You, are, you saw it just today when we're, when we're recording this podcast. Donald Trump is back at it again, pressuring Mexico, threatening Mexico with tariffs uh, if Mexico doesn't do more with fentanyl. And as Mexico becomes useful again during the campaign, I am sure we will see the nativist rhetoric once again emerge. That's just the way Donald Trump is. You do not appease the tyrant. You well, confront the tyrant intelligently, yeah. but you confront the tyrant. It's like it's opinion. like tr trotting out the steel and aluminum tariffs on Canada when exactly. you're you know when you're it's the same it's the same routine. Leon, let, let me ask you a question. Changing, but what was the last president of Mexico you think was a good president for Mexico? However, you want to define good or great president. Great president, uh, it would be very difficult to use that word. Uh, <laughs> I, I, th I think I think yeah I think Mexico one of one of the the, the main problems that we've that we've had is that we. We have not been blessed at crucial times with talented people. Um, I mean, we, the, the transition in 2000 was led by a man who turned out to be deeply flawed uh, in Vicente Fox. If we have had, and this, I am not saying that Chile is ideal, in, in, it is not, but I think that if you look at the way Chile uh, handled its transition and the people who, was, who, who were behind it, um, just the names of the people who, who managed that transition. Uh, th those were remarkable politicians who figured out a way to conduct the country in a, in a sane manner. Again, I am not saying Chile is in an ideal situation, but when you compare it to how Mexico handled its transition, I think Chile has the advantage. And so uh, I, would, I would need to say Cedillo probably. Cedillo was, I was, was going to suggest I was going to suggest Cedillo, but I didn't I didn't want to give away a, a possible punchline. No, I think <laughs> I think Cedillo Cedillo was probably the best president we've had in in my lifetime um, because he managed a brutal crisis. He did it in a sober fashion. He is an uh, he is an honest man. Um, he's a serious man. And he seamlessly conducted the transition towards democracy. Uh, we, we now consider it a given, but he went on national TV and immediately said that the president of Mexico was going to be Vicente Fox, and that was that. Right. Easier said than done, huh? As we, right. might find out, as we might find out the hard way in the United States in the coming, in the coming months. Mm -hmm. So I think that Cedillo, was probably the best president that uh, that I can that I can think of uh, in mm -hmm. the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. Leon, I want to talk a little bit about your adoptive country of, of uh, uh, the United States and uh, the Hispanic vote. You worked in Univision. I, I, I know the, the, the very good work your channel has done in trying to get Hispanic voters to register and vote. Um, we have this phenomenon where, you know, uh, 
according to an NBC poll that came out a couple days ago, or they reported it, 27% of Hispanics are going, planning to vote for Trump. It's a bit like uh, J.C. Watts, a Republican congressman, once said his parents criticized him as a Republican. He's, he was African-American still. Um, there's like a, an African-American voting for um, the Republican Party is like Colonel San a chicken voting for Colonel Sanders. <laughs> uh, you can't help think a little bit of the same with the case of Hispanics, obviously Cubans and Venezuelans, but we can, that's a different issue. But how do you explain this? I mean, uh, you know, why, you know, I think Democrats have, have sort of always assumed they were going to swing. And I've had conversations with plenty who thought that it was just a given that Trump, no, none were going to vote for Trump. How do you explain this 27%? Well, I'll use your words, Chris. I mean, you, you say Cubans and Venezuelans, that's a different issue. And that's, that's where we should probably begin. I mean, it's, it's not, it is not monolithic. Uh, the Latino vote is not monolithic. Um, certainly the way the Cuban-American community will vote will be different than the, the way, than the way that the Mexican-American or Salvadorian-American community in the Southwest will, will vote. Um, and, and, that's, and, that's, and that's a crucial thing. You, you just see it in how campaigns are approaching each of these very different uh, segments of the Latino vote. Uh, in in, in uh, Florida, the obsession of the Republican Party nowadays, and it has been so for a while, uh, I spoke to a, to a few Florida pollsters for a, for a recent piece for uh, Slate, and they explained to me how there's a permanent campaign uh, trying to label Joe Biden the reincarnation of Fidel Castro. Yeah. And that seems to be working with, with, with Cuban Americans up to a point as ridiculous as it seems, um, uh, or a puppet of, of, of uh, the American far left, as ridiculous as it seems. That message would never fly uh, in, in, uh, in California or Arizona or Colorado with, with Mexican Americans or Nevada. That would never fly because we are interested in different things. Although we are not, we should say, we are not interested only in immigration. One of, the, one of the things that I think that uh, Choc Rocha, uh, Bernie Sanders' genius Latino outreach director, who is quite a character, discovered is that, is that uh, the, Latino, la, the Latino vote, especially in the Southwest, is not obsessed with immigration, or at least not only. We care about the economy, we care about jobs, we care about healthcare, and that's how the campaign should, should speak to us. So I think that the, the way you can explain it is we, we, we are a multifaceted community. We, do, we care about the economy. Many people realize that before the pandemic, Trump was doing pretty well on the economy. Um, and then there's a segment of the Hispanic vote, the Latino vote, that thinks that Trump has been very hard on Cuba and Venezuela, and they will favor him. I think that's how you, how you would explain it. Yeah, yeah. And, and what do you sense in, in Los Angeles? I mean, among your listeners, uh, among your networks, uh, their interpretation of the importance of this election, uh, both, and I say this both you, you as, a, as, a, as a scholar and also as a, as a Mexican-American, what's, yes. your, what's your sense of this election? Uh, well, uh, in, in Los Angeles, you, you know that California was Bernie Sanders' country. Yeah. And, and California is basically now home base for the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. the, the, the governor is democratic, the, the assembly is democratic, the two biggest cities in the, in, the, in the state are ruled by promising Democrats. I could name you just off the top of my head probably 10 figures within the Democratic Party in California that 
will probably grow in national politics and could become whatever they wanted, uh, beginning with the, with the mayor of Los Angeles, Eddie Garcetti, and Javier Becerra, the attorney general, and Alex Padilla, and I could go on and on and on with, with local politics and the Democratic Party. The so, vice presidential candidate. And of course, and of course, <laughs> first and foremost, our senator, right, uh, Kamala Harris, who, who is who is obviously from California and 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 a Democrat. So, um, it, California is a given. California is a given, and uh, it, none of Trump's attempts to approach California will 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 work because he has done exact the exact opposite. He has seen California as its main opponent. Uh, even going after policies that have affected the daily lives of Californians, you can see it even even in, even with the fires and his stubbornness. So um, that's that's LA and California. But you you asked also how I see how I see this this election this election playing out. I, I do believe that this is not an election in which politics should be on the ballot or uh, ideology should be or is on the ballot. I think that decency is on the ballot just basic moral decency, because we have two sides, one of them, whether or not you agree with the democratic policies or not, this is, again, this is not politics, this is not ideology, uh, whether or not we, you agree with them, th there's a basic decency to these people. There's a basic respect for fact among these people. They are politicians, uh, believe me, I'm a journalist, I've interviewed many of them, I understand them, they are politicians, but there's a basic sense of decency. On the other side, there's no sense of decency. There is simply no limit to dishonesty and cynicism and bending the truth or breaking the truth uh, for political gain. And when you have those opposing, uh, those opposing options on the ballot, one should always favor decency because what's at stake is American democracy. The, um, uh, returning to a point that you made earlier, but is relevant in the list of uh, aspiring new generation Democrats um, most of the names you mentioned were Hispanics in California. Where do you see this generation emerging in Mexico? You, you, you called out your own frustration to the lack of a new leadership in Mexico. Um, who, do you see uh, the ferment of a new leadership class, either at the state level or in the party movement level or what have you? Uh, in, in Mexico, and of course, cross-border too. We've always hoped that this would be, you know, there'd be a transnational movement of Hispanic Americans, Mexican Americans that would reinforce these, these uh, very informal uh, bonds that have, have emerged and evolved between the two countries. But in Mexico, where have you seen this? Is there a hope for a new generation? And who, who is that? Yeah, that, that would be wonderful to, to really see that cooperation between uh, Hispanic politicians, Mexican-American politicians on this side, and Mexican politicians on the other side. It scared uh, the Jesus out of Fox, I'll tell you that right now, but that's yeah, a different can, issue. Can you imagine? But that, that's, that's, <laughs> that would be wonderful. And that, but that's a, different, that's a different conversation because it's so deep and, and, uh, and long. Um, there are not many. There are not many. Uh, many people who could go into politics, who could make the decision that Barack Obama very bravely made when he was a young man uh, in Chicago, in, instead, instead of, of uh, going for the big box and a uh, private career in law, he decided to just give it a try and, 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 uh, and become a, a politician and a, and a public servant, I would imagine, that's a funcionario publico, which is a, a phrase in, in Spanish that I really love. Um, 
and and put his his life towards the service of others right i don't i don't see that there are many there are many young voices out there that that i think could certainly be that for mexican in foreign in mexican politics um, but uh, but i but i i it would be difficult for me to name people who are already active both here in in the united states and in mexico but thinking of mexico for sure there are many people who could certainly make the jump within, within, for example, Claudia Sheinbaum's uh, young uh, young team. There are people there who can certainly uh, aspire to bigger things, but they would have to they would have to be uh, more sensible and uh, and smarter and uh, less dogmatic because sometimes you read these people in um, in social media or see how they behave and they they are they are truly dogmatic and intolerant uh, which is particularly sad for a young generation and on the right listen we th there was there was a, an, an interesting figure in ricardo anaya the the candidate for the for the for the pan and the coalition uh for the frente in in uh, last uh, last election cycle he is he is talented he is smart he is well prepared he is um multilingual uh he he speaks english perfectly well um he is a promising figure can he come back to mexico and lead uh the opposition uh, in, in an effective way uh, well that that remains to be seen because the mexican the mexican right is also broken between the anagistas and the pan and uh, felipe calderon and uh, and and so with a broken opposition that that also helps explain lopez obrador's popularity um and and its endurance yeah i mean i i think it's fair to say also though that anaya in the last election just hadn't reached the level of maturity and and and, and ripe enough to actually project being the president of mexico i mean is that 100 percent? yeah yeah i think you know, I, I mean, when, when, when the history books ever get written in, in terms of activism, I mean, how can anybody explain in this world why Americans aren't on the street every single day when people, so many more people, and you can talk to any doctor who has to prescribe medicines, can't afford their medicines, right? <laughs> I mean, can you, imagine, can you imagine a situation, you know, they would literally, you know, going back to the doctor and saying, I haven't taken my medicine, I can't afford it, I can't get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine if that were the case in European countries, I mean, what you know, what, you know, how the people would react to that. So, you know, trying to generate activism as it were, or we're talking about in, in Mexico and other places, but my God, you know, it would take a lifetime and, and a million dissertations to explain the docility of the American public, no? hundred percent. I'll just, I'll just say that I completely agree with you with, uh, with regards to Anaya. I think he, his ambition got the better of him. Right. He, he ended up uh, breaking up, the, the venerable pan, and again, but when I say venerable, I don't mean that I agree with his policies. I already described myself as, a, as an orphan of the left um, and as a classic liberal, but, uh, but I do, I, it, it's, it's a fact that the pan, the center-right party in Mexico, and sometimes more right than center, but center-right party in Mexico, is a venerable institution and, had, and, played, played a, a, and has played a crucial role in Mexican politics, and Anaya broke it because of his ambition and yep. history will also yep. remember him that that way of course i i but i think there's a i am more optimistic when it comes to the united states frankly i know we are in a very difficult moment in the united states but when people ask me back in mexico whether or not i am optimistic i am optimistic 
the press is still free, even if we have uh, propagandists all over, the press is still free and vibrant uh, and, and powerful. Satire is alive and well in the United States. That should not be a given. Uh, uh, we, we, we take it as a given, but it's not. The, the, the fact that there's nightly comedy and satire uh, relentlessly mocking the president of the United States. There's a vibrant opposition full of figures that can uh, now or later come and take their, their, their spot on the political landscape. Um, institutions are, 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 I think, resisting the stress test of Trumpism. Um, there's a, there's a, a civil society that's, that's alive, that's very much alive and well. You can see it in the protests. So I am very, um, very optimistic when it comes to my adoptive country of, uh, of America. I will say too, the um, two things that you say is that the satire is not only alive and well, it's really gotten good. I mean, uh, you watch Stephen Colbert and others and you think, wow, I, I don't know. I mean, The Daily Show is one thing under Jon Stewart, but it's, it's now, is, it's diffused across different uh, media channels and different media and it's really brilliant right now. And now you have, you know, Stephen Colbert is helping, doing these informational uh, videos on helping people register to vote. And so it's yes. really becoming engaged. And then the second is, you know, having taught at Columbia for years and taught in other universities before, now I can tell you the level of activism of students um, and, and students, majority women, as well as Muslim Americans and Hispanic Americans are getting engaged in ways I never saw, never thought I'd see even, say 20 years ago. So there, there, is, a, there is hope. Yeah, I guess the question, the question is who are they speaking to? Are they speaking to themselves or are they, are they really speaking to uh, trying to build broader coalitions and prosecute their ideas along a, a broader base? And I, and I don't know the answer to that, you know? The same thing with some of the satire, right? Some of the satires, those quote in the know, laugh at it and think it's great, but you know, it seems to me it's not changing the views of maybe at least 45% of the Americans, right? So uh, it's I, comforting, I, but... I, 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 yeah, I, I do agree with Chris that it's, it's a, a silver lining of Trumpism, the way, the way, the way young people have, have reacted uh, and, and, and called into action. Um, I see that also, I saw that with, with my students at USC. Um, I, my, 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 my concern was that that generation with the passion it shows and the anger it has, completely justified, was uh, in the end was not going to be pragmatic enough to understand that the, the priority was, was and still is to get Trump out of office. I always say there's no progressive movement with, with Trump in office. So, for example, when, when Bernie Sanders lost the, 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 the primaries to, to Joe Biden, my, my, my worry was that uh, the, people's around, the people around him, especially the young politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, would, would jump off the train and say it, it, was, it was Bernie or bust, right? But she did the opposite. She did the opposite. She actually changed her tone and, and became pragmatic and said, uh, that of course she 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 had she would have preferred Bernie, but she but she would support Biden. And if 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 young people uh, understand that and uh, and and channel their indignation the right way and show up to vote, then this would be then this will 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 be a, a, um, a quite a productive moment for that generation and for the United States. So here's hoping, right?
Yeah, yeah, it's kind of kind of makes you wish that uh, the Venezuelan opposition would learn the same uh, need to unify uh, around a common threat. But that's that's a topic for another conversation, <laughs> which I would like to return to. Um, yes, I agree. We don't want to take any more of your time. Uh, uh, you've got a busy job, and you're doing a great, fantastic job with Univision. I can't say this enough, Leon. I mean, I, you know, when I think about the indicators of a change within the United States for the positive. Uh, both in terms of the evolution of Hispanic, Spanish language media and Hispanic sort of movements. Um, I, you're really at the forefront of it and Univision as well. And, um, you know, we, we look demographically down the road and we see dramatic changes that, that I made the joke, but that obviously Fox and others are trying to resist. Um, but the, the role that you are doing in integrating and reflecting that new generation and that new culture, I think, is, is going to be essential when the history of U.S. democracy is, is written. Well, um, hopefully not anytime soon in the past tense. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's very touching to, to hear, Chris. I mean, I, I, should, I, should, I should point out, I should say that, you know, Univision has this unique relationship with its audience. You, you know that, uh, I mean, we, we refer to the audience as, as our community. In Miami, you frequently hear the expression, mi gente o nuestra gente, yeah. and that's really not, not a marketing gimmick. Uh, at all. I mean, allowing the people in the community to tell their story, not, not only through the story that happens to them, but by allowing them to tell their own life stories. We really do try to give voice to the voiceless. And, and this extends to the way we, we, we try to deal with the challenge of nativism and, and anti-immigrant sentiment. I've always believed that uh, journalistic objectivity is just not equivalent to moral neutrality, to moral indifference. If, yeah. if, if Trump and his circle of proactive nativists like Stephen Miller are trying to hurt our community in very practical and cruel ways, we must denounce it. I mean, we have to stand up for the community. We, we have to point towards justice because if we don't, as journalists, then we're just betraying the most essential responsibility of, of our craft. Yeah, I'm sure, Leon, as, as you would agree, any, any um, network that has Daniel Coronel is running the news division is making a very strong statement about what it feels about the integrity and the role <laughs> of, of news gathering. So. Daniel Coronel has, um, tiene, and I will say this in, in, uh, in Mexican Spanish, Daniel Coronel tiene un gran par de huevos. Esa es la realidad. <laughs> sí. See, I think that, that's, that's actually worked its way into the American lexicon by now. Yeah, yeah. 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 the American English. And that's... So, let me just end on a, on a, on a question. Leo. Do you know any place that I can get a, a presidential jet for cheap? Well, yeah, Mexico. You can. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, glad you caught on. In Mexico, in Mexico. Although now it's complicated because you know that it was there was a lottery for, yeah, for yeah. the plane, but really wasn't the plane. But it was a bunch of tickets that the government bought. But really, the oh man, if it weren't tragic, it would be very funny. It's really sad. Again, the symbolism issue. We return to what we started with, which is the the a presidency that relies on symbols. So thank you very much. This has been fantastic. Uh, I really, I could do this all night, um, but I do have, I think our audience would uh, eventually tire even if I didn't. So thank you very much, Leo. Thank you okay, so much. Thank you very much, Leo. Thanks, we'll, thanks, we'll Leo. Well, Chris, that was as entertaining and, and thought provoking as we thought it would be. I mean, there's so many things we could chat about in, in, in a bit of a summary, but one of the one of the many things that, that stuck with me, and it's not just a Mexican story, it's 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 the anguish of the progressive in a system yeah. in a country yeah. that doesn't know how you know or figure out how do you build a coalition 
to move something forward. Not even a progressive for Samuel, though he is and describes himself, but somebody who is between the extremes, who just wants to move away, move on in some reasonable way and, and can't figure out where the coalition comes to do it. Yeah, and uh, you've joked in the past that sort of party systems and party realignment is sort of my thing. Um, yes. Or thing, I think you said. Um, you love it. You love it. You I love do. It. And, and it, but it is, this is emblematic of the, that, this moment in history where, you know, you see Republicans, and he talked about this, Republicans in, in the U.S. trying to recapture the, the old, but they can't, the old Republican Party that has been hijacked by Trump. And here we had someone talking about how basically AMLO has hijacked the progressive agenda and there's been that split. And so it's, you know, I really think it was an interesting other side of the coin of populism from a different uh, side of the spectrum, but isn't really representative of the principles that it claims to uh, represent. Yes, so yes. fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. If you if you wear the cloak of uh, progressivism, if that's the word, um, then um, even if you could, even if you do things that are 180 degrees to the opposite, uh, as so we were talking about is. The students won't come out on the street for you uh, yeah. to take up your cause because the person that you're protesting against says he's a progressive. Uh, but, yeah. the, but the disconnect, the complete disconnect between the word and the deed is um, is where the frustration is and the frustration. And look, this is not just a Mexican story, as you mentioned, in the U.S. You're sitting in England now. You under, yep. this, is a, this is a conversation that God knows is going on in Colombia. God knows it's going on in in well, it's been going on in, in Argentina at least since you know the yeah. 30s, uh, and in in Peru. It's I mean in, in various ways, but um, there always seem to be um, in most of these places a middle, reasonable middle where things would become coherent and move forward. Uh, uh, and the frustration now is it's not even clear that where that path lies. Yeah, no, and we're seeing in real time uh, the, you know the efforts by people. I think perhaps diluted efforts by people to try to sort of maintain, you know, not deny the popularity of a single leader. And by doing so, trying to recapture that base. But in fact, they may just get steamrolled by it, which I think he mm. implied and didn't even apply. He said it pretty much directly in the case of the, of the Mexican left. Um, no, a fascinating interview. And again, really fascinating stuff when he turned also to the United States and, and, and Hispanic voters not voting as a bloc. Uh, really just, just great, sort of, uh, if I can be so bold as to say, sort of represents, I think, what, what we like to do at Two Gringos is sort of cross borders and talk about things and the similarities uh, politically, culturally, um, economically across uh, the region. So uh, just fascinating. Yeah, no, there's a lot to, get, a lot to get into that. As you know, now there's a lot of conversation about what's, what's, been, what's been going on with the political rhetoric in Miami in the Latin community and how explosive and, and incendiary it is. And so there's way, many things to get into with him on that and others. But I think the other thing that he said that, um, that others haven't said, uh, and, and it pained him to say it, was that, you know, Mexicans in Mexico don't, don't care really care. Much. Yeah. Don't yeah. care much. And yeah. boy, that's, that's, that's a bitter pill. Yeah, I mean, and I do think, you know, we, we're sort of taking, extending the wrap up here because I think because we're so animated by the interview. But, you know, I, I think it does sort of demonstrate that, you know, for those Democrats, big D Democrats in the United States who expected this outrage and this backlash, it hasn't really come. They may be insulted, but they don't really they aren't necessarily as committed to it as I think we a lot of us assumed. So, yeah, it was it was like particularly in the visit, as you say, the outrage and over the visit of AMLO, it was like. 
the biggest outrage was coming from Democrats yep. In, yep. In, in the U.S. and others, but whatever they're in, obviously folks in Canada about it. But it was basically they they were arguing what, to a certain extent, partially wasn't theirs to argue. It yep. was to argue argue for people who weren't arguing for it. <laughs> exactly. Like, like no, Mexican. No. Yeah. No. Well, I think sometimes Democrats' perpetual state right now is outrage and indignation. <laughs> and we just hard, can't. It's hard not to be, though. That's I know, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rabbit's hole, though. I mean, I mm-hmm. saw it happen with the opposition to Hugo Chavez and, you know, everything. Just, they just lost a sense of proportion. But anyway, that's a topic for another conversation. Um, Ken, what have we been listening to and what have we been doing, actually, I guess? We've been... Well, our audience has been listening to two Greenos yeah. questions, but you and I have been listening to and talking about it, God only knows. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it should be. <laughs> see, see you next time. <laughs> see you next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.